This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. We are all familiar with the phrase, style over substance, but those words might mean something else to architects. Are they harsh, or do they have a place in any conversation where architecture is discussed? Let's find out in today's episode. Today's episode is brought to you with generous support from Building Design and Construction. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today, Andrew and I are going to explore the phrase style over substance. And I gotta tell you that when we chose this as today's topic, my mind went negative instantly. The phrase style over substance, like nobody ever says that is a good thing. It always has a negative connotation. At first I was like, well, does it always have to be negative? And I think that I've kind of concluded that yes, it it is. It's always <laughs> negative. Or at least it is until maybe maybe you're going to say something today that's going to change my mind or I'll see something in a different light. I remain open to that possibility. But as of this moment, even though I still think it's an interesting phrase to discuss, I can't ever think of an instance or style over substance is like, yeah, way to go. Good, good job. Job <laughs> well made done. It's a good comment. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I'm going to help. You know, I'm such a positive person here. So we'll, we'll see. <laughs> so if we're going to explore style over substance, I assume everybody knows what it means. I think it can mean a lot of different things. We always hear that phrase. And I've heard that phrase when I was much younger, and it wasn't used in an architectural sense. But I think that just for our purposes, we're going to define it as basically meaning that it's more important that something looks good than it actually be good. Okay. Yeah. What is be good? Well, that, you know. Like perform good or do its job good yeah, or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. Whatever it is. Is it good? I don't know. But it looks good. But it looks good. Yeah. So I think that the the easiest way, the broadest umbrella that we can cover on this topic is just with starting with. Does that phrase, style over substance, does it limit the creative process? This really kind of stemmed from a conversation, or at least an experience I was going through in my office, where a group of us were all designing buildings. And I talked to one of the guys about it today because it turns out he doesn't listen to the podcast, so I could have said this whole conversation and he would never have known. But it wasn't really about him, but I wanted to help him understand what we were going to be talking about. And in the context of this, it was basically the short version is I was bitter that my design didn't get selected in a recent design kind of competition. Four of us designed buildings. The client said, we like this one chose best. Some, yeah. yeah, they chose okay. a different one best. And to make it worse, they said they said that they liked mine second, I think. <laughs> That's at least the way I'm taking it. And I thought, That's almost worse. Second's the first loser. I'd, I'd rather just not know. Just go. Oh, yeah, just not. We like scheme B and leave it at and that. That's it. Not yeah. go, mm, scheme D was really close. I don't want to know that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's actually, it actually is a little worse. It just twists the knife. <laughs> it hurts. Yeah. yeah. You know, from their perspective, it's not worse. It's constructive. And to me, it is constructive because they were awesome. They gave feedback on what they liked about each of the different schemes. That's nice, actually. Yeah, it was really, really great. And the truth is, is the scheme that they chose, I really liked as well. 
actually, they were all really good. And heading in, heading into this meeting, I was just convinced I was going to destroy everybody. My design <laughs> was so <No>. much better <laughs> than everybody else's. And then we did like a practice session. We kind of got everybody together because we're all still working from home. These were presentations done over the computer and teleconferencing. So we had a meeting before the meeting where we kind of made sure that the presentation was right and everybody knew what their parts were and what the roles were. And we asked everyone to be in a position to speak about their design, but not from the context of I did this and I did that, but we did this and we did that, but it's still your design, right? So you should Mm -hmm. know it better than anyone else. Sure. And so as we were going through that kind of warm up session, I looked at what everyone has done and how much progress they'd made. And I was like, okay, I'm not so confident anymore because like everybody's work was really, really good. And I will say that despite the fact that stung when they didn't choose mine, if I had to choose which one I didn't mind losing to, like like the most, because they were all good. If they'd chosen any of them, it would have hurt no matter what, but it hurt the least that they chose this particular one, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's still good that they were all good. It would be different if somebody came with some of garbage. Yeah, that I would have had a real problem with. Now, you know, everybody can get behind. Actually, if they chose any of them, I felt confident that, okay, we can all rally and really make something amazing from this really nice starting point that we're in. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what I was meaning. Yeah. That haven't been said. I thought mine was much further along that path than anybody else's. So mm. so in my bitter disappointment, <laughs> sour grapes, for sure. This is totally sour grapes. I'm admitting on this recording, this is sour grapes on my part. I took it into, and you're wondering, where's this going? Style versus substance. I chose to, when I was designing my building, there were a lot of problems that I solved during the creative process that I knew were coming for me. So I was like, how's my air going to be distributed? How's my structure going to work? How am I going to deal with roof access so I don't have guardrails around the perimeter of my roof in certain areas where the view is important? I mean, I really solved all these problems. And I got to tell you, a lot of people, they didn't do that, which is fine. You can always solve that stuff later. But I'm wondering, I started wondering, did I limit myself in the wow, shazow aspect of my design by grounding it in reality too soon? I mean, other people, they might have like a cantilever and you go, well, I would never design that cantilever that they've got in because it'll never get built. Mm-hmm. That 15 foot cantilever is not going to be in this budget. Like we're not going to have a 15 foot cantilever in this building. Yeah. So I wouldn't design it. But man, let me tell you, it looked awesome. I mean, it was beautiful. It was amazing. It was inspiring. Nobody could look at that and not go, this is going to be amazing. Yeah. I would never do that because I go, one, we don't have the budget for that particular move. And even if I thought I'm going to try to fake a cantilever in, make it look like it's a cantilever, but actually put something to support it down somewhere else, Mm -hmm. that's how I would have approached it. So to back to the beginning of this six paragraphs later or whatever it was, does the idea that putting substance into the creative process up front limit the creative output that you can go through? Right? Like, is it a bad thing? It's what I'm asking you. I don't know. I don't think so. And I think we're going to get into it later. But in a professional context, like what you're describing, I don't really think so. I think it's, it's better, actually, to have some of that groundedness. I think there's a balance you kind of have to strike is what professionals were always having to do. I think sometimes playing by the rules is even a little bit harder than not playing by the rules. 
while I think, I guess, yes, in a way it limits your creativity, but it's something you're going to have to deal with almost no matter what. I think the, the ability to be able to keep it grounded but push the boundaries, your creative limits, is it's one of the challenging parts of our profession. Yeah, you know, and I'm wondering if I'm saying that part inaccurately, because the truth is, is I think parameters actually force you to be more creative. Like if somebody said, unlimited space, unlimited budget, here's your blank piece of paper, do whatever you want. That's really hard. That just unbridled creativity. It's like you need some kind of parameters to say, well, I'm responding to something. And in my case, part of what I was responding to was they gave us a program, right? So we're not just designing the shell, this this particular Mm -hmm. project. It's we're doing the building and the interior finish up. So we had the programming. And we knew all the different rooms they needed, and, and we, we had a grasp on what adjacencies needed to be. There was some room for interpretation for how the building would be used to the constituents, you know, the people that actually come to the, the building as opposed to the people that work in the building. Work there. Mm-hmm. So there was some interpretation and some creative license there, but I generally think having parameters that define, or in some case you could say, limit your creativity is a good thing because it forces you to actually be more creative. Yeah. And actually, I wouldn't say limit. To me, limit's the wrong word. I think that rules and parameters actually force you to be more creative. I would agree with that. That's something I've always thought like forever. And that's one of the things I try to teach about is that the rules are there. You're not going to get away from them. Once or twice in your life, maybe somebody's going to come to you and say, I don't have a budget. I don't have a program. I have a bajillion dollars. Let's do something. Once or twice. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I'm thinking I'm batting zero on I mean, if that you're lucky, there. if you're lucky, hey, we still got time for somebody to do that. Because of this podcast, at some point, someone's going to come to us and say, I've got a bajillion dollars and I don't know what to do with it, but I want you guys to design something. All right, folks, <laughs> clock is ticking. Bajillionaires, <laughs> come hook me up. Yeah, all those that listen to this podcast, for sure. Well, I, I do think that, and I'm trying to get around... I was reminded of a time when I was in school and this was my freshman year and it's no secret. I struggled my freshman year in architecture school. Part of that was just the idea that you have to become more mature because you're not at home and you don't have somebody paying attention to what you're doing and you're complete responsible for yourself. And my parents had me locked down pretty tight. So I went to college. I kind of went bananas for a while, (laughs) you know, and I'm surrounded by all these like unbelievable type A personalities. And I remember walking in, I might even have told this before on the, on a, on a previous podcast. I don't know. I know I've told the story before, but I walked in one of the class and we had an assignment. We were reading Italian Calvino's Invisible Cities. Yes. And we had to read that book. And I can't remember if it was one per chapter or whatever. The I was going to say, was. did you have to each, the way it normally works is you get assigned a chapter. Yeah. Well, we had to write a postcard to our TA, our teaching assistant. So we had to render some image on the front, you know, write the verbiage on the back, put a stamp on it and mail it to our TA. And he had to receive it by certain dates for us to get credit for doing the work. And I walked in at one point and because the way the UT Austin School of Architecture works as freshmen, you have a design studio that's like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but then you have a communications studio, which is basically we're going to teach you how to draw. A drawing studio, yeah. And render and all these kind of graphic communication skills. And so this was not a studio assignment. This was part of our graphic communication studio. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't a one studio 
assignment. It was the entire freshman class was doing this. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. There might've been 40 people, 50 people. I can't remember how big my freshman class was. It wasn't big, but I walk in and they've got like four postcards pinned up on the wall and mine's one of them. And they go on to point how everybody's doing really bad on this assignment. And, but these, it were the ones that they chose as an example of really poor work, you know, (laughs) which was one of mine. Yeah. Awesome. That makes you feel good. It stung. What I realized was I was trying to be too literal and grounded in what I was doing. So I said, I was like, all right, screw it. I'm going to go nuts. And so the stuff I started drawing was so fantastical that all of a sudden it was great and it was received differently. And I was like, I needed to get out of my head and stop trying to draw something that could actually exist and start drawing things that were completely preposterous. And now all of a sudden I'm, I'm not doing bad work. So I, I do think that there are times when the creative process can be hampered because you're thinking about the practical realities of our profession at a time when it may not be necessary. I'm pretty sure that the option that they selected, they chose that one, despite the fact that he doesn't have a roof hatch shown. Well, guess what? He doesn't need to show a roof hatch at this point. We're showing concept designs. That's 100% on me. But at the same time, I was kind of like, to the uninitiated, is one better than the other? Because then the other thing that's in the back of my head is, what if once this particular building starts to turn into what it will actually be, will it be appreciably different than what was presented and what they selected? Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that would be the issue, right? That's where I would start to be concerned as a, as a designer without some grounding that it could change so much because, well, we can't accomplish that the way you've shown it and we've got to change it to do this, so we've got to change it to do that. And that by the time it's done, it, it's barely recognizable. Yeah. You know, and I also think that if you've done this before, you should take those things into consideration. That's just, that should be part of this process. You should know it and you should incorporate that workflow into your design process. So is it easier to design something amazing when you don't put certain parameters in place? I kind of think it is, but I think it's wrong. And that's the, that's the style over substance part of this whole conversation. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, completely agree. I just... What makes me wonder about this is like, where does that come into play? And I think that's really the critical point of contingency or, or discussion here, right? Is like, when is it that I have to start grounding things in reality? For example, in your projects that you just did, did you go too far? Did you put in too much grounding that kept you from maybe pushing your creative bit? Even, I wonder, is it just because it was too grounded that the graphics that you have show things like a roof hatch, which nobody ever wants to see that, even though it's got to be there. But it, there's some part of it that takes away from the aesthetic. Yeah. You know, I mean, like that, was it a couple of years ago, right, in Chicago, where somebody photoshopped out all their HVAC stuff on the top of a building because it was ugly? <laughs> yeah, we talked about that in the photography, architectural photography, that that people, to win awards, will actually photoshop out things like, power lines and electric panels and rooftop equipment. Yeah. and th- So that their, their building looks amazing. And you're like, that's not what it is, though. Yeah, exactly. And so I think early in the concept design, I don't know how much of that matters. And I wonder how much of that affects, for example, in the presentation, like how much that affects the client's viewpoints of what you're showing. The pretty image is always the winner, but it may not be realistic at all. 
Well, the thing about this is they looked at four schemes and they had 15, 20 minutes worth of presentation on those four schemes. But we had to cover a lot of ground. We had to talk about like approach to the building site, how the topography might end up sure. working in terms of access to the site because we have some water you got to drive over. So there's like bridge conversation stuff like that. And so we went through this and it's a lot. And this is something that I know we're going to talk about later because I'm looking at my show notes here. But it has to do with an experience that we probably all went through when we were in school. And that is somebody doing something that looks good, but it doesn't work. They didn't address all the kind of, and I'm not saying that's what happened on this design project. That's in the larger context of this conversation. And that is you have finite resources to a certain extent, right? Mm -hmm. And that's time. Sure. So if I'm trying to solve problems like roof hatches and mechanical rooms and making sure my electrical room is on the outside of the building and on the right side of the building based on where the power is coming in, I'm not spending time modeling or making something spectacular. You know, at a certain point, the meter hits empty, the clock meter hits zero, and you got to go with what you got. There is a consideration even to being able to effectively prioritize what you're trying to accomplish. Like if my goal was to get my scheme built, I would advise myself, don't waste time on roof hatches because you're not going to cover them and you can solve that later. Like get the project first and then talk about the things that you got to deal with. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't work that way. Yeah. and I, But I think some of us do. I mean, I don't know that I work that way either, but I may do it a little bit more than you. I think that that's true, right? It's really about where's that line? Like, no, I've got to have a roof hatch, but do I take the time to do it? Do I put that effort somewhere else? The way that I typically approach something like that maybe is that, well, I know I've got to have a roof hatch and in my mind, I know where it's going to go, but I'm not going to put it on there because it's not that important right now. But if my stuff gets selected, then I know exactly where it's going. Same thing about the mechanical rooms. Because I mean, there's a part of it, I think, comes from experience and age. I mean, I hate to say that, but some of those things you can't help but think about because you've had to deal with them so many times on so many projects to make them work and get them where they're supposed to be and all those kind of things that when you start designing, all that stuff is already in you. Like all those parameters are already there. But if you haven't been working for long enough or maybe you have, but all you've ever done is design and so you don't ever have to deal with that, that those kind of things aren't popping into your head from the very beginning. Yeah, for sure. I think there's something to that. I might could try to do it, but I don't know if I could. Like you say, I don't know if I could ignore... The fact that I know that that's going to happen and has to be there. I should point out in case somebody's like really latched on to this as an example, me using the roof hatch as the example isn't actually the graphic component of showing a roof hatch. <laughs> it was designing my floor plan in such a way that I had a mechanical room where I wanted it to be so that I could have a ladder to get up to my roof hatch, which was on a part of the roof where I wouldn't have to put guardrails that could be visible because I was too close to the edge of my building. Yeah, I mean, it was an aesthetic choice of how this happened or where it was going and the other things yeah. that led up to it. Yeah, it wasn't me drawing a rectangle and putting a box on my roof. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. I got you. So let's shift gears on this just a little bit, because I think that, that it would be interesting to see, you could weigh in on this a little bit. I have a little story that I'm going to talk about, but the subject matter has to do with how do graphics change your opinion on, on the quality of the work? The premise being, if it looks good, it obviously must be good. And there's a couple of instances that really stand out at me. And this is something that happens, I mean, a lot. I worked for a firm years ago, and 
the design team, it was the one stint I spent at a larger firm. Let's say there were 20 people that had the I'm a designer hat. Well, like 12 of those people designed things that sold work and they were fantastical and they just looked amazing. And then the other eight of us, we had to design stuff that it's going to get built. So we're like, well, we can't do that because that cantilever doesn't exist. Or we can't do that because the L over 360 on that is going to make that pipe have to be so big that it doesn't have the same kind of slender yeah, appearance that this view or render or drawing has. Yeah. And I was one of those guys. But I'm reminded of a time when I was in school. I remember the story quite well. And I remember the professor. There's a couple of nuances that are lost on me, but here's the parameters. There was a guy, I didn't know him. I'd never seen him before in my life which is unusual for an architecture program like at UT where it's very small. You kind of know everybody. Mm -hmm. And this guy showed up and it was one of these, like, who are you? Right? Like, like that sounded awfully aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, I didn't know who it was. So it turns out that this guy was like five years older than everybody else. And what he had done is he'd gone to school and we were like in fifth year or something like that. And he had, at his fifth year, done the work program which is basically you either work in the spring semester and summer yeah. or the summer and fall. It's like nine months. It's a work program. Yeah. And so he left to go do that with the idea that after nine months, you know, you come back and you finish your education. Well, he went and didn't come back for like five years. And the place where he worked finally said, you have to leave and go back and get your degree, right? Or we can't, it's a rate limiting step for you. Yeah. So he came back and only had one semester of work that he had to do to get his degree. And this was the studio that he was in. So that's why none of us knew who he was because he had started the program five years earlier. Yeah. Actually, I guess it was Ten like years nine or, years. Yeah. Or, a while. So this guy like never came to class. He didn't want to be there. He's just like, I need to check the box. But this guy, Andrew, could draw. Oh my God. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So what his... M.O. was, is he would not show up for work, show up to studio for weeks at a time, and then he'd show up, put his headphones on, and crank out the most amazing drawings you've ever seen in your life, and then pin them up, and everyone would go, oh my god, this guy's next level, <laughs> you know, because everything looked amazing. Yeah. But I've always kind of held my hat on this, because I've talked to the professor both then and in the years since. Professors know whether or not you're doing the work. He knew that that guy never showed up for class and then just showed up and banged out a solution. Yeah, we know. Which, I'll be honest, he did work very efficiently. He had that, I've been out of studio for a long time, so when I work for eight hours, I actually get eight hours of work done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not the studio version of, I'm here for eight hours, but I don't... The college student version of that. Where we have. That's right. I've been here for six hours. I've worked for one, if I'm lucky. Yes. <laughs> so he knows. I mean, this guy's doing like, night perspectives like do you know how hard it is to do a night person there's no computers this is all hand yeah, stuff yeah i mean it was amazing but what i remember is we had a fairly complicated program and there was like a hotel and a movie theater and a restaurant i mean it just had a lot of stuff going in on it and the project site was an infill lot in barcelona and i'll be honest everybody's projects were terrible because none of us had really been to europe at that point in our lives for those of us who've been lucky enough to go travel. Mm -hmm. And so like my lobby was 800 times bigger than any European hotel lobby would ever be, <laughs> you, you know, yeah. it was American scale hotel lobby. Sure. But one of the things that he did is, and this is terrible design. I go, this is where style over substance that I distinctly remember almost 30 years ago, how this showed up. 
So there was a movie theater just right next to the, the hotel lobby. And they shared a bathroom. So that means the same toilets that you would use if you were in the hotel were the same toilets you would use if you were in the movie theater. Mm-hmm. But the way this worked is there was no lobby to get access to the toilets from the movie theater. You actually went directly from the movie theater into the bathroom, right? And if you kept going, you could walk out into the hotel lobby, which tells you you could also go into the hotel, walk through the bathroom, and you're inside the movie theater. And again, not the lobby, the movie theater. Ah, like free movies then, huh? Yes, free movies just cut through the hotel lobby. Yeah. And for some reason, that really drove me bananas because part of what made this particular project so challenging was trying to figure out how to get all this stuff to work and make sense with the amount of space we have to work with it. And this guy's just designing stuff. It all looked amazing. It just didn't work. And I even remember then that it really pissed me off because... I would say still now. (laughs) Well, I'm passionate. I'm a passionate You're hanging on to this one, man. Yeah. Well, it just, it suits my needs for this particular conversation. But it, it's one of those things that I've been a juror many times. I've been a juror in, in your class. It's the idea that some students worked on a project for weeks or months, possibly. And as a juror, we don't have enough time with each student to really get into the little parts of their solution. We're discussing concepts and big ideas because that's all we have time to get into. Mm-hmm. And I always thought if somebody's talking about your bathroom layout during one of your studio critiques... Your idea is terrible. Yeah, you've gone the wrong direction. Yeah. So if that's the premise, which I will concede that it is, I'm not really sure why it bothers me so much that he had stupid movie theater, hotel lobby, bathroom problems, even though it didn't work. I think part of it I'm mad is because, again, just like now, I made it work and he didn't. And I feel like that invalidates his solution. (laughs) Yes. Right? I could see that. But at the same time, I would think my comment would be, well, you can solve the bathroom problem fairly easily somehow. How was the concept? But I still get your point. And it still happens today, right? I mean, you know that. Like I said, you've gone to reviews and you can see like somebody that does these great renders, their posters are so fantastical. That will woo you over much faster than if their design and floor plans and sections are all really legit and sound. But they look terrible. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but they look horrible. They're really well done in the sense of technically speaking, but they just don't look graphically pleasing. Well, so you and I have talked about this a little bit before. It was also when you see people that were like, we have a local school up here just outside Dallas and they kind of co-mingle their graduate and undergraduate students together. Mm -hmm. And this happened even down at UT. There were times when you had maybe a first or second semester graduate student talking about their project and you're comparing it to a fourth or a fifth year undergraduate student talking about their project. And what you would see is that the graduate student, they don't have years worth of drawing and graphic skills under their belt, but they're more mature and they seem to have better command over their vocabulary. So they can stand up there in front of garbage on the wall and speak. Yeah. Just, just BS about the whole thing. Yes. Then you have like this other person who's got all the drawings and they can't hardly string a sentence together and they're flop sweating as they're trying to talk about what they did and why they did it. Yeah. So we're aware that there's a disconnect between like in the case of the graduate student, the words are there, but the drawings aren't. I've always said, I don't know how you deal with that because it looks like you haven't put the work in. You can talk about all these great ideas all you want, 
But until they show up on paper, they don't count. Mm-hmm. I mean, I need to see them. Yes. Great. That's the person that ends up being a salesman. I don't mean like a salesman, but like they go get the jobs. They're the architectural salesperson. Yeah. they can, Well, they can talk. And then it's the other person that makes it work, <laughs> gets the product done. I don't know. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that. I get that point, but you know, maybe after they spent more time drawing that their graphic communication skills catch up with their verbal communication skills. Possibly, yeah. But it's still that I'm eating my cake and having it too at the moment because I'm complaining that if it's just graphically looks good, so therefore people assume it's good when it's actually not good. But then we have ones where it actually is good, but graphically it doesn't look good, so therefore it doesn't count. It's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't currently. I'm aware that I'm I'm playing both sides of the fence here. Yeah. It's hard not to, though. I mean, because it's pretty true. You're trying to be reasonable to both sides. Like the example that it feels like I'm just baking this person for what they did on their project when I I designed mine with so much more, you know, logic behind it. The truth is, is his design, amazing. It's really, really good. Very strong. Very strong. Actually, stronger. I hope he doesn't listen now. Stronger party than what mine had. Hmm. But my brain goes to, can we keep this looking the way that you intend it when ductwork starts getting introduced in your structure? We can't afford to have AESS steel on our project. Mm-hmm. And so how does all this kind of come into play? So the fun part for me is now I'm like, okay, let's roll up our sleeves because I'm in. Together, we're going to try to figure out how we can make your project look the way you intended it to look during your initial concept. Yeah. And that's fun. That's fun for me. And that should be part of what it is. But I'm, like I said, I'm still kind of bitter in the back that like that I screwed myself over for spending time and resources on things that didn't matter. And the answer is yes. I know the answer is yes. Maybe, maybe not. I think as you get older, maybe I shouldn't say older, as you get more experienced, some of that stuff is unavoidable. For instance, when you're in school, I think some of that stuff is less important. You were talking earlier about your freshman year and how you had to sort of let go of everything, which as I'm learning, and I just forgot, I guess, and maybe it was because I was a little bit older when I went into architecture, but as a freshman in your first year of school, you're really having to be broken down and learn, unlearn everything that you know about creativity almost. Realize you got to let go of reality for a little bit to get your creativity going and then at some point sort of reel yourself back in. The older you get, the more you reel yourself back in, but then at the same time, your professional work is trying to start big and then slowly reel yourself back in. Sometimes I think that's got to be what happens, professionally speaking, because there are times where I'm amazed that Frank Gehry or Zaha Hadid or any of those people could ever sell anybody on some of the buildings that they create. Sometimes to me that gets to be a lot of style over substance. Well, I think honestly, in, and let's just use Frank Gehry or Zaha Hadid as an example. I think that if you're the client and you hire one of those two, you know that what you're getting, I think, is only loosely interpreted as architecture. I think that a lot of people might disagree with this. I think that architects are artistic, but we're not Mm -hmm. artists. There's no singular vision that's at play here. Then all of a sudden you look at someone like Frank Gehry or the work that Zaha Hadid was doing. I think there was a singular vision there. And I think that's as close as architecture can get to art. Because if you're the client who's buying this, you're buying this as a thing that just happens to also Be have a building, a building yeah. in it. And I mean, I agree that at some yeah. point, yeah, that's easier for them. I'm just thinking of the first time I'm going to do something so expressive or bouncing piece of titanium. 
how did I sell somebody on that? I mean, I know after a while, people are going in to expect that, but. Well, so clearly, I think those people are charming. They're the people who can actually do the design and communicate the design really, really well. You know, you always get the, well, he's a good designer, but he can't communicate really well. And even you said, well, it's a great communicator, but he's not mm-hmm. a designer. And I go, when you look at these Bjark Ingels and the Zaha Deeds and Frank Carries, and there's a whole list of them, they're able to communicate with passion and enthusiasm to the client, the, both the realities of the project and the vision of the project in a way that transcend keeping the water out and staying on budget. I don't think it's like they just lucked into it. I'm not either. I'm, I definitely agree with that. I bet those people are forces of nature when you get around them. Something, right? Yeah. So I agree to some extent. There's personality there, but at the same time, you know, I go into some of those, some famous buildings and you're like, man, they dropped the ball here. They dropped the ball there, you know, where I can start to feel like this is really more style over substance. I think there's kind of a really style end of the spectrum in architecture that sometimes disregards substance or function, maybe. Well, I mean, we know that Frank Gehry, he designed his buildings and had no idea how to get them built and had to basically invent the software to articulate what it was that mm-hmm. they were doing. And I think that's part of what makes it transcend the label of just architecture and actually be closer to the label of art. And that actually brings us all the way back to the very beginning in that I guarantee you those guys aren't thinking about roof hatches. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I remember, so my mother-in-law, she used to work for an insurance company, and they did underwriting on really difficult, high-expense, challenging things. So, like, nuclear waste disposal. Oh, okay. And they did things like, I think they did the insurance for the Democratic National Convention when it was in Denver. And they do insurance for professional sports organizations, like things that just, they're not normal. They're not regular. And one of the projects that they did the insurance for was the Denver Art Museum that Daniel Liebskin Oh, yeah. Okay. Did. Yeah. And she would share stories about this every now and then about some of the challenges that the contractor was trying to deal with. It was over budget and it was late and they were having all kinds of problems. And, and there were things like, if you're not familiar with that building, it, it kind of has juts out into these like tremendous cantilevered spiky bits. Oh, yeah. Those really big, long points, especially that one big one. Well, you know, on the inside, those points are articulated. It's not like there's a hollow and it's a flat wall on the inside and it just, there's a pointy thing on the outside. Yeah. The point, it's on the inside as well. Well, those walls were supposed to be plaster, but they couldn't figure out how to plaster them because like, how do I, how do I get somebody 30 feet out in the air in this, on the inside of this building in this cantilever to actually plaster it? So they had to do it with just drywall and sheetrock mud because Guys basically had to be on the wall and work their way off the wall Mm -hmm. as they were doing the finish of it. And so when Daniel Liebskin and his team, they had the big idea about what was going to happen. You know, they're not thinking about, well, how do we make this a plaster wall? Because somebody's got to actually build it. And how do they build it? They're not worried about that. This is like, let's do something amazing. Let's do something cool. It's going to win awards. It's actually going to drive people to the city and to this building to see it. Yeah. You know, people talked about Bill Bow and how it, yeah. it transcended that city. It went from a sleepy little village that nobody ever went to, to that building alone got like 8 million people to the city. Mm-hmm. And so so those people aren't hiring them to say, well, I need a janitor's closet and I need a... Be-. They're not worried about that stuff. They're like, we'll figure out where that stuff will go. Mm-hmm. So 
it is style over substance, but the goal is to deliver the style. That's their priority. That's what they're being hired to do. Yes. And the substance comes later. Yeah. And may not always work. <laughs> yeah. Look, this might become a shock to some of the people listening. I'm not Frank Gary or Zaha Hadid. You know, I don't have their skill set. Yeah. So I'm not saying I do either, but I mean, I'm also saying I'm not sure I want it. Okay. So let's introduce the third or fourth thing that I kind of jotted a note down as something that I thought would be worth getting into. And it was the idea of authentic versus reproduction. And in this case, the substance might actually be the authentic and the style is the reproduction. Sure. Okay. In a way. Yeah. Right. Because you're kind of saying, well, they both have style, but in one case you're paying a premium. Here's the example. I actually wrote a post about this years ago and and the premise was, can you steal design? And the example that I gave had to do with Eames chairs. And one of my favorite chairs of all time is the fiberglass shell chair with the wire Eiffel base to it. Mm -hmm. At the time that I wrote that article, which was years ago, it was like a $350 chair. It was expensive. Mm -hmm. And where I wanted to buy them was I have a, a 48 inch round Eames table. And I was like, I mean, I'd really like to have some Eames chairs that go around it. And I thought I'll price these. Well, they're $350 a pop. Yeah. Like $1,400 for chairs, four chairs. I didn't have that kind of money. Yeah. I'm not sure I have that kind of money now. I'd be really hard pressed to justify $1,400 on chairs. Again, I'm not Frank Gary. <laughs> yeah. I'm not Frank Gary. <laughs> However, you can buy a reproduction of that chair for all intents and purposes, you wouldn't be able to tell that it's not a licensed original, mm-hmm. right? Because they make it used with all the same stuff for $100 a chair. Probably just not stamped somewhere. That's probably about the only difference. Yeah, it doesn't have the license for the manufacturer underneath it. Let's say that you're somebody that really likes that chair. Like there's the style aspect of it that you really appreciate. Great design, great concept, execution. It's a perfect chair. Well, I don't have $1,400, but I do have 400 Yeah. So how am I justified in buying the knockoff versus buying the other? Because what you're really going for is style in this case, right? Because someone else already paid to vet it, right? At this point, that chair has been around for so long, it's a known thing. Mm-hmm. So I always kind of talk myself into the, would I buy that reproduction? And my knee-jerk reaction is, of course I would. I mean, what I want is the chair. I don't care who makes it. Right? So I'm looking at it going, that's an awesome chair. It would look great in my kitchen. And that's why I want it. So let's extrapolate that as a concept out a little bit to architecture, you know, like the houses that we design. And at the time that I wrote that post, we were actually going something to where a potential client came in, interviewed us. They showed a picture of a house that we had done. They go, we love it. We want this house. And we're like, we did that house for this person. They're like, yeah, yeah, but I want it. So can you just like sell me the plans? And we're like, no, no, that's not how this works. Yeah, that does happen and a lot though. Not in my world. I know that it exists, but we would never do it. And so we said, thank you, but no thank you. So they went to somebody else, showed them the house and said, I want a house that looks like that house. So somebody else designed it for them. Now, they didn't get inside it. So there's lots of things. But if you like stood on the outside and looked at it, it's pretty close. Hmm. But the proportions are off. The dimensions aren't quite right. It's like, you can tell it's like if you took the original and then Xerox copied it a whole bunch of times, 
You know, like and it just got a little minutes. distorted, right? Yeah, it's, it's just a little off. It drove the partners where I worked at the time crazy, you know, and they're like, should we start talking to attorneys about them stealing this? Yeah, lawsuit and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, because we had kind of, I don't think this is egotistical, but we kind of had a style and people who were familiar with our work could look at a project and go, they, these guys, oh, yeah, that's they did this. Yeah. And so now there was some concern internally about somebody looking at this poor copy and going, well, that looks like they did it. It's just not very good. And we're like, this is a big deal to us now because this isn't the imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. This is the threat to what we did and to our livelihood. This is a huge problem for us, this reproduction of the original. But somehow, I don't know, I didn't have a problem when it was just a chair. But now all of a sudden I do when it's, when it, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, I see. What do you do? So, I mean, what do you do with, and that's, I'm not specifically referring to somebody stealing your design and rebuilding it and it's a bad copy, but just the idea that you can come up with a parameter where it's okay to get close enough because what you want is the style of the thing. You like the aesthetics. You're getting this because it looks the way you want it to look. Sure. I would venture a guess that if I actually bought that chair and had it delivered and I set it right next to the original, I bet there's some nuances to it that are slightly different. It can't just be 400% markup just because this manufacturer made it versus this other manufacturer made it. I'm sure like the thickness of the fiberglass shell is a little bit, a little more, or that the gaskets that attach the shell to the frame are a little thicker, or a little wider. Sure. I mean, it's something, yeah, but small, small nuances. Yeah. Yeah. It's very nuanced. But somehow it's okay to go with the style in this case over the substance. Yeah. Somewhat. At least I've convinced myself. Yeah. I mean, I would agree. And I don't know. I think that's a difficult thing because, you know, when you're saying that, the same thing I'm thinking of is, to me, clothing is a lot like that. I mean, there's a lot of things like that, I guess I should say. The fashion industry is rampant with this, but they're kind of set up to do that. They're like, not everybody can afford this Christian Dior original. But other designers will look at it and say, we're going to interpret what he did and make it, instead of it costing $15,000, it's going to cost $250 and you can buy it at Nordstrom's or you can get this at Target. But I mean, I think the same thing happens with housing. I mean, quite honestly. Sure. But I think there's sacrifices in quality and things like that. I don't know. I, I think it's an interesting situation. I'm not sure how I feel about it. Nobody's ever stolen anything of mine. You know, there's intellectual rights for sure about that kind of stuff. Well, I know that when the research was done, like, could we do something to these folks that copied the building that we did? What we learned is it has to be such an exact reproduction. If it's just, even if it's a deviation of any magnitude, it's enough to say it's different. Yeah. Said all that copyright stuff. Because, you know, for a while there was all those projects getting copied in China, right? Just straight up. Yeah. Famous architectural projects from around the world getting built in China. As far as I know, that kind of behavior is still going on. Well, that would be an argument for style over substance, right? Yeah. Because they're saying, we want this design, but we know that it's not being built to the same standards that the original was. But it doesn't stop people from doing it. So we kind of started off the whole episode by saying, is style over substance ever a good thing? I'd say, we're like, no, it's never a good thing. Like that phrase is never used as a positive. And maybe when it comes to like, some of the things we just kind of introduced talking about fashion, like that's not necessarily a bad thing. Or maybe furniture. Furniture, yeah. You know, and part of that is how do you make things accessible? It's one of those things that, I mean, I would really, I don't know how to put it. Let's say we take the chair as an example, mm-hmm. but I change it slightly. 
you don't want a knockoff Eames chair. You want the real thing. Yes. Because you could have bought a knockoff. Yes. But you haven't because you're like, no, I want to wait for the real deal. So clearly it matters. I've been very tempted just because I want to have it, but I'm the buy the best and cry once as opposed to buying it multiples and it never holds up. And it's also just because to me, it's such an iconic thing. I mean, for me personally. So that's why I really want the, the original. Yeah. Cause you know what? You're going to appreciate it more. No, I was going to make it more superficial that oh, even okay. though somebody may not know that one's a, a knockoff, knockoff versus an original, mm-hmm. you would probably still tell them this is an original Eames lounger. That would be part of your, Hey, that's what this thing is. Yeah. Is to make sure people understood that this is the real McCoy. Sure. I definitely wouldn't say, well, that, that's a replica. Oh, actually I probably would. Like if I had bought a replica, I would say, well, that's a replica. It's not a real one. Because you didn't want to get called, you don't want to get called out for it. No. It's like saying I got 20 inch wheels and somebody go, no, those are 18s, but they look good, but they're, those are 18s. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I don't know where the, I don't know where that line gets drawn because think about it this way. Like I have reproductions of art prints and I like them because of the art. You don't have to go like, oh, that's, that's not the original Mona Lisa. That's just a print. That's a definitely a style part of it that I like it aesthetically and not that I have to have an original. Yeah, but if you were given the choice of having the original over your poster. Well, of course, but. (laughs) Right? So that still becomes substance over style. Yeah, true. So maybe, because it's time to move on to the hypothetical, maybe we just kind of put a bow on this and say that the conclusion really is that it has to be style and substance, but just not necessarily in that order. My summary of this whole thing would be that I think it's both. Your goal as a designer, as an architect, I think your goal is to try to get as much of both as you can within, again, like the parameters that we've been talking about. Hopefully your goal is to push both of those as much as you can within the parameters that you're working with so that they stay somewhat, in my opinion, somewhat balanced. But there are those that I think that at some point, one of those two things matters more than the other to the designer. And so as we started this conversation, for you, the, the substance matters a little bit more, but it may have mattered less to the other people that were doing things in your office. And they should always both be there by the end product. They have to be at some point, at least the substance. The substance almost always has to be there. Well, I would say with my sour grapes summary of this is that those people were smarter. I wouldn't say that they were choosing style over substance, but they were fighting the right fights for the level where we were at, for the conversation that needed to be have. Sure. They were smarter. I learned a lesson in this, and that is do what you got to do to win. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not my lesson. My my lesson really has to do with, I'm very proud of what I did. I liked it. Honestly, if you asked everyone on the team, they would say, yes, that it turned out really nice. But I think that as I move forward in this, and, you know, I was going to try to wrap this up, but it makes me think about when I first started to sell work. When I first started selling work, I didn't have a good close rate. And a big part of that was I was still young at it and people would ask questions and my desire to help them, I would point out all the challenges that they have to deal with. Like, you want to do that? Okay, sure, we can do that. But we're going to have to do this and we're going to have to do that and it's going to be expensive. And they're like, okay, no, we're not doing that. Yeah, forget that. Yeah. Then they they leave and they're like, that guy wasn't very positive. He didn't have very can-do attitude. And things weren't working out very well. And what I learned was that somebody could come and ask you a question, go, this is what I want to do. And you're like, you know what? That would be amazing. Let's see if we can make that happen. And then that's it. That's all you're talking about. Yeah. 
then you start the process and you go, all right, we made it happen. It's going to cost X. And, the, and then they're empowered now to say, oh, you know, I don't want to do that. Or like, awesome, let's do that. Yeah, it's so great. I'm so attached to it now. I don't care what it costs. Yeah, so, but they have ownership and that's okay. That's Oh, yeah. I don't think that's manipulation, but that's just, that's saying, you know what? When we talk about the process of creating a building with somebody and the client's collaborative and they're part of the process and they have ownership of the whole thing, you don't want to be the person that says, hey, that thing you really want to do, it's going to be really hard and I'm a bummer and wah, wah, wah. Yeah. Because then they're like, this is not going to be a fun process. I'd rather work with somebody who's like, you know what? That does sound amazing. Let's see if we can make that happen. Maybe you can, maybe you can't, but either way, you're in it together. And I'm sure that I, that's the lesson I've yet to learn. Not saying that you can't do it, you shouldn't do it. Part of it, I think, is just being an architect. We're always taught to look at things critically. And Yeah, I've learned that in the very beginning, that's not what you should be talking about. Yeah. Especially when it was like, when this was really mostly residential projects. Sure. What you wanted to do was to empower the people that were interviewing you with realizing their dreams. That's what they want, you know? And then it either it goes down the path and you say, all right, here's what you wanted. So here's how we can do that. And they go, I want to do that. I still remember one example. We were doing a house for a guy and he wanted to put in this giant projection screen TV and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. So I was doing the research to solve this problem to give this guy exactly what he wants. This was really important to him. And I realized, and this may seem obvious to some people now, but I didn't realize it at the time. You can't project black in a projector. Mm -hmm. The black on the screen is only as black as the room is dark. So once I learned that and I sat down with this guy and I said, okay, here's what we're doing. Here's where we can put it. Here's how big it is. Da, 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 da. But guess what? You can't project black. So we either have to make the room really dark. And in order to make the room really dark, these giant openings that you love, they got to have like huge sliding doors. And he's like, I don't want to do that. And he's like, okay, I'll just buy a giant TV. <laughs> yeah. And that was the end of it. And if I'd gone in and said, well, you know, this thing that you've been dreaming about this whole time, well, it's, gonna, it's really hard. And, you know, you can't do these other things you want to do. You're not being part of the solution. You're just identifying and clarifying a problem. And people don't want that when you're in that initial phase. You're in the creative part where everything's a possibility. And you're just saying, let's see what we can make happen. Yeah. And then you put the freaking roof hatch in. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right, so let's move on to the hypothetical for today. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's do it. This one. If there was a hypothetical roof hatch. Yes. Uh, yeah. For a billion dollars, would you put a roof hatch in? <laughs> on your concept sketch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, so here it is. For $1 billion with a B, $1 billion, would you dress up as an 18th century English gentleman? which means wig, powdered face, you know, pants down to the knees, followed by stockings, buckled shoes, the fake beauty mark, everything, the works for the rest of your life. Now, we could make this harder or easier. Originally, I was thinking about saying, that's just it. If you're awake, you have to dress like that. Let's just do that. Go ahead. But here it is, because I, I think the answer for both of us is no. Like right out of the gate. No, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> Right. I mean, billion dollars, is a lot of money. But see, the other wrinkle to this was also that the billion dollars is your billion dollars, which means you and your family, they get the benefits that come along from the billion dollars. But when you die, everything disappears. Poof, it's gone. You can't bequeath all this wealth to your family. 
Because the truth is, if somebody said, I'll give you a billion dollars if you do this for the rest of your life, the only reason I would do that is I can go, well, my family would be covered. My daughter taken care of, right? Yeah. That would change <laughs> my motivation. Three generations, let's hope. Yeah, forever, right? That's a lot of money. So it, it changes from an absurdly easy question to say no to. Like, can you imagine going to the beach and you're dressed up in your buckled shoes and your powdered wig? Of course not. You wouldn't do that. So it would ruin all the things that you could possibly do with your billion dollars. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't appreciate anything. Here's the wrinkle. Here's what I decided to take out of it. So for your billion dollars, you only have to wear that when in the presence of another person. So if it's just you, you don't have to do it. But as soon as somebody else shows up, powdered wig, beauty mark, stocking pants. My pantaloons. Your pantaloons. Uh, yes, I don't know. It, I don't even know if that changes it very much. I don't feel like I would want to do that at all. Even if it's only when I'm in the presence of another person. All right, I could get around that. It's pretty known that I don't mind being by myself, but all the time I can't do it. And then I mean, what am I going to spend a billion dollars on all by myself? I guess I could buy an island. Yes. I could live on that island all by myself. <laughs> you could design your house on this island. But can you imagine yeah. having meetings with the contractor in your powder? <laughs> you That'd know. be awesome. But could I turn it into like a pirate? <laughs> At least if my house is in the Caribbean, I could maybe make it work. No. I could it, make some money that way. Also no. extra money. <laughs> no, because that'd be like saying you have to wear like a Spider-Man costume. Like maybe that yeah. would be equally as challenging to do. But I go, the act of going to the grocery store. Now you're walking around in your Ben Franklin shoes. <laughs> I know, exactly. My big buckle shoes and my wig. But then oh. but then someone could say, you've got a billion dollars. You're not going to the grocery store anymore. Oh, that's true. You got people to do that for you. Yeah, but when they show up at my house, I still got <laughs> to deliver my stuff. Unless I just have to, I'm going to hold myself up and be like, okay, you guys can come in and deliver the groceries. Yeah. I'm in the safe room. Yeah, I can't come in here. In my 50,000 square foot house, yeah. like you guys have access to this 5,000 square feet. I'm in the other 45 doing whatever I want as a regular dressed human being, right? Actually, now you're talking because I could have a whole staff. People could cook my meals and do all this stuff and I'd be like, leave it in the kitchen at six o'clock and then go away. Yeah, get out. <laughs> get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know, but I, I don't know. Yeah. There's a lot of things I might do for money, but I'm not sure if that would be it. Walking your daughter down the aisle. Aisle, yeah. On her marriage like day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just don't see it. Now, if if it was transferable, and I might, I would still really try to find some loopholes in that, because how's it going to evaporate? If okay. I just, if Let I buy an island and I just get it in cash and bury it under my house, and then my kids come and get it. But if it's all digital or electronic, well, I could see that. Okay, but. so let's say that you're, everything that you buy, you can bequeath to your family. Yeah, then I might be more tempted. If it's everything I buy and only in the presence of other people. Yes, let's say that's, that's the parameters. That's getting closer to being like, yeah, okay. No, that's well, what it is. It's, that's a yes or no. We're at a yes or no point. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I still don't know. Come what on. What about you? Come on, you tell me. What do you think? I think if if it could be bequeathed beyond my lifetime, and I only have to dress up that way when I'm around other people, yeah, I would do it. Hmm. I would do it. Because while I, I like the company of others, I think that 
that's life changing money. That's a lot of money. Yeah, that's a lot of security. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's true. And it's true. And maybe that's my problem. I can't even fathom that much money. Well, here's the other thing. If I think almost all parents would say this, and this is not even this extreme, but I kind of go, would you die for your kid? I think we'd all say, yeah. Yeah. So right, why yeah. wouldn't so, I wear a powdered wig to take care of them for the rest of their life? This is true. My God, that would really, could he? Oh, that would be so. It'd be I, horrible though. I don't like wearing. <laughs> I mean, I, that's the thing is dying would be easier almost because it would be over with. <laughs> then I'd well, be done. I wouldn't have to live it every day. <laughs> well, you could get the billion dollars and then kill yourself. <laughs> and that's then true. They, they just get it. Wow, we're getting dark. <laughs> I thought we were trying to avoid that. We are. Yeah, I, I probably would. If I could choose the stuff that I wore also. Yes, I know powder wig and all that, but like if I could choose the colors, if it was all black and I look like a pilgrim, yeah, maybe. <laughs> if I could just be that eccentric professor, all black, 1800s yeah. in a white wig. <laughs> yeah, but it's got to be clothes in the style of eight. So you can't. Yeah. Ha- oh, no. You no. can't wear like puffy pants that have skull and crossbones as the fabric. No, no, no. They would just be black. Just everything was black. You could do that. Yeah. Okay. I'm in. If it can live beyond me, sure. What if your powdered wig was the kind where you had like a sateen ribbon in your ponytail? Oh, yeah. I'm out. I can't do it. I'm sorry. I want to do. I'm thinking it's Thomas Jefferson style, right? Not the wavy one, but like it's that short ponytail kind of thing. Oh, there's no. See, that's the thing. I could not. I'd rather have that than the big wavy one, the super curly kind of wavy one. I want the. I'd be all over those curls. I want the old-timey 1800 man bun ponytail thing. No. I couldn't Yeah, I couldn't do it. That's the thing mm. that w- I go, I'd rather have helmet wig hair <laughs> than ponytail ribboned hair. Uh, nah, I'm okay with that. And you know the buckle shoes, they have like heels on them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'd be like six foot eight. <laughs> <laughs> God, can you imagine how ridiculous... Uh, everything about this is, uh, it's really brutal. Now it's just, I kind of want to do this. Will you give me $1,000 to do this for a day? <laughs> we should have a GoFundMe or something and you guys could. <laughs> yeah, it's but it's got to be like for a, a work week. Day. It's, well, a week. No, I wouldn't do it for a week, for $1,000. Oh, not for $1,000, but like a week. Whatever we could raise, I'd do it for a week. <laughs> okay, so if it was. Go to school and <laughs> everything. If it was $5,000, right? But it was a zero something, so it's a, basically a thousand dollars a day. But you got to do it for all five days to get the five thousand. If you sure. do it for three days, you don't get three; you get zero. Yeah, zero. You got to do it all, and it's got to be a Monday through a Friday. Friday. Yeah. So that means client meetings, contract uh-huh. job site visits. Job sites. That would be awesome. I was thinking I went to the job site today. So that would be able to show up at a job site like that. Oh, I'm pretty sure that I would also change the way that I spoke and like. I would probably bow more often, like <laughs> uh, like the little curtsy bow. You're just going to commit. I mean, if you're doing it, you're all in. Yes. I would tell I everyone so. my middle name was Rutherford. <laughs> if you look like that, your name probably is Rutherford. Sure. I'd come up with something good, another name as well. Like Rutherford Hayes the Third. I was thinking like Andrew Harrington <laughs> Hawkins. Oh, God. It's so ridiculous. So the the answer is as long as we can give it to our kids, yes. Yeah, we're, we're I'd, I'd make it happen. Yeah, but if I couldn't, then I'm not sure. That might be a really hard pass because I think I'm foolish enough without having to dress like it. 
not to say that I'm sure some people think I dress like a fool anyway. So, <laughs> can you imagine what your driver's license would look like? You know, I bet they wouldn't let you do it. I bet your driver's license would have to be normal. Then you couldn't drive because you can't do it. That's fine. I'm not driving. If I got that much money, somebody's driving me around. Can you imagine looking over? Okay, Crazy? So, okay, so someone's driving you around. Somebody looks over and sees, you know. Oh, I'm going to roll down the window and be like, do you happen to have any Grey Poupon? Yeah, they look over and they see, you know, oh my God, the third Earl of Sandwich is over there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is so ridiculous. I would play it up, I think, if I had to do it. You know, it's funny. My friend, Andrew Bennett, I started to present this question to him. Mm-hmm. I tend to test out these hypotheticals on others before I bring them to the show. Yeah. And when I asked him, this is how the question went. For a billion dollars, would you? Yes. <laughs> I go, you didn't even let me finish. She's like, He's like, yeah, I don't care. It's a billion dollars. Yeah. I'm in. It's done. That's funny. It's a done deal. Which is true, I guess. You know, if you think about it from that standpoint, what difference does it make? A billion dollars is a ton of money. That is a lot of money. Okay. I think we've reached the point in this hypothetical question that it's a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 51, Style Over Substance. Thanks again to our media sponsor, Building Design and Construction, for their support of today's episode. If you like today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app. And hit that subscribe button so that you can get so hot there, toxic new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. Good sir. While you're there, please take a few more seconds and leave us a five-star, that looks amazing, rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com, show notes, links, info, and photos for this episode. Be sure to stick around until the very end, and we'll share some outros from today's recording if we have any. Be safe, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. I don't even know that I eat any corn. Why actually. Why wouldn't you eat corn? That's like the, just the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Do you, I don't even can't. I, I can't think of anything I eat that has corn in it. I mean, I don't eat corn tortillas. Um, what about just straight up corn? <laughs> oh, no. I hope nobody else from your office is listening. They might. Because then they're like, they're like, well, mine wasn't. Didn't deserve to be third. Well, I mean, they need to grow up then. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> I didn't say any of them were bad. <laughs> I just said I, I had favorites. <laughs> That's just what it is. You know what would be hilarious? I don't want to do it because we don't have that kind of time. It'd be really hilarious if we could both get get in that outfit. Yes. I know it would be awesome. I'm glad we're wasting time on this. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so, what is your favorite vegetable? We should, this should be the next uh, podcast episode, Vegetables. <laughs>